All right, Andrea, what were your favorite 90s blockbuster movies, the really big movies? There was Forrest Gump. You want a chocolate? Titanic. I'm so cold. You're going to get out of here. Jurassic Park. Hold on to your butt. Terminator 2. And there was True Lies. You're fired. The 90s was the era for major Hollywood films. And today on People in the 90s, we're taking a look at People Magazine's issue from August 22nd, 1994, and the one and only Jamie Lee Curtis Star cover of that issue. Have you ever killed anyone? Yeah, but they were all bad. She had just starred, of course, in True Lies with Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, I loved her then. I love her now. And we will be speaking with Jamie Lee Curtis today. Me in the 90s, you in the 90s, you remember. Yes, you do. I know you do. I still can't believe she said yes. I'm so psyched. (laughs) It's actually wild she said yes. Anyway, I'm Jason Cheeler, Deputy West Coast Editor at People Magazine. And I'm Andrea Laventhal, Style and Beauty Director at People Magazine. And this is People in the 90s, where each week we dive deep into an issue of People Magazine from the best era ever. Hi, Andrea. Hi, Jason. So movies were so huge in the 90s, right? I mean, like, go back to those days of, like, just stand in line for a ticket. You would go to a movie just because Tom Cruise or Julia Roberts was in the movie, right? Yeah, I mean, everyone who lined up in 1995 for my favorite movie, Showgirls, knows. (laughs) Okay. I just needed to mention Showgirls. It really was neither here nor there, but we can't talk about the 90s without mentioning that blockbuster. Well, yeah. Like, you know, I, I like your dress. It's for sales. <laughs> Um Anyway, we digress. We're not talking about Showgirls today. We, we, another episode. Okay, Andrew, another episode. Fine. Yeah. But but there were there was this movie stars were stars. I mean, I'll never forget reading about how Julia Roberts escalated herself into the pay range of $20 million a movie, like all the boys, right? She kind of broke up that boys club because she was the first female actor who could open a movie, quote unquote, which means like they would have such a large opening weekend that they would make so much money back that she was worthy of that paycheck that Tom Hanks and Tom Cruise were getting. You're right. I mean, these movies were events. You marked it on your calendar. You knew that July 4th weekend or a holiday weekend or whatever it was, this movie was coming out. You were going to have to wait in line to get your ticket. You hope the theater wouldn't be filled. Fun fact, Jason, to go on a little tangent that I, I think you'll like to come on with me. I'll follow. I'll follow. Let's do it. I am what you call a theater center center. Have you ever heard of that? <laughs> Okay, that means that if I'm going to pay money for a movie ticket and to sit in the theater and watch the movie, I need to sit center row, center seat. Really? Yes. And in order to accomplish that, especially when you live in a densely populated area, you have to get to the theater 40 minutes early. Oh, my God. So Andrea in 1997 going to see Titanic had to arrive at the theater probably an hour and 40 minutes early to get my Twizzlers, my popcorn, uh-uh. my Diet Coke, uh-uh. and then to just like claim my seat. <laughs> Usually the, th- the movie before was still playing and I would just like hover by the door. But the excitement of these films and knowing tons of people were coming and that I would have to like jockey for my seat, my center center, that's what these blockbusters were all about. Are we done here for today? 
Just invoice me and hopefully you take my insurance for that therapy session. Thanks. I mean, you're, you're a super normal teenager, but you're also like a super old lady. Mm-hmm. You nailed me. That's exactly, yeah. Well, the point here is we've kind of lost our big event blockbusters, right? It's like whatever, what happened to those 90s blockbusters? Like, I mean, the issue does beg a question, right? I mean, like we, we waited until July 4th every year because that was a holiday. And also that was Will Smith Day, right? Like he always had a movie on July 4th, right? Like Independence Day and Men in Black. These are like, these are Will Smith's days. And like kind of then thinking about like where did our original summer blockbusters go that weren't sequels? Like even just really interesting one-off movies with two really big actors. So there's three reasons that we don't have those movies anymore, right? Well, number one, they stopped making as much money because moviegoers became less loyal to people and more to brands, right? And so sequels became an easy way to fix that. And that coincided with the dependence on foreign markets. Like China right now is the largest cinema market in the world, followed by Russia and Brazil as major box office revenue. And so they've become less interested in like, you know, quirky or nuanced takes on American life, right? Like they just, they aren't as interested. And then lastly, and this is so fascinating, stay with me. Um, I mean, you stayed with me through Center Center. (laughs) I will stay with you for foreign domestic box office something. I mean, totally just like stay with me because the decline of like those 90s movies coincided with like the rise of like major TV, right? Oh yeah, totally. We started to get really great storytelling, like The Sopranos, one of my favorites, Six Feet Under. Like these major event TV was coming on at the same time like box office was waning for these one-off movies. And so that's where our sequels came from. And that's why we have had like, you know, 23 Marvel movies. That is such an interesting explainer. And it sounds really right on. And I can't wait to pass that off as my own knowledge sometime <laughs> soon in, in a conversation. But you're right. I mean, you you went, there was no Forrest Gump 2, right. Forrest Gump Returns. Um, there was certainly no Titanic, the sequel, The Ship Floats. <laughs> 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 the ship the ship sails again like, like, like t- titanic like wait we got it wrong it's really there <laughs> but i think that the 90s were the best time for cliche date movies because mm. there was something for everyone and it was the kind of movie where you'd get like a true lies for example you get the action but you know you also get the humor and the little bit of the romance and the sexiness and you walk out and everyone feels good everyone feels like they had a good time everyone feels that center center high you know what i mean <laughs> i love that you're trying to make center center a thing So the reason we are so fixated on blockbuster movies and movies of the 90s is because our cover star, August 22nd, 1994, was Jamie Lee Curtis, who at the time was starring in True Lies. It was, I can't even call it a breakout role because she was such a huge star beforehand, but it was this amazing role that left everyone so intrigued that people put her on the cover and gave her this gorgeous seven page spread where she's like in a river with two dogs and like a fishing rod, but a little black dress. I mean, like it's there's like, there's like a lot in this amazing photo. And of course, by this point, you know, Jamie Lee Curtis was 35 years old. We knew her from roles in A Fish Called Wanda, which was like incredible trading places. And she also had been, you know, the original scream queen. Right. She's like in a series of slasher movies. And of course, like, you know, Halloween, which like we all completely loved her for. And she's had so much fun with those roles. But there she was at 35. 
she was starring in a James Cameron movie with Arnold Schwarzenegger. This is before Titanic, James Cameron. Also, it should be noted, you know, she was the child of very famous parents, you know, Tony Curtis and Janet Leigh. And what I find remarkable about this woman is that we all know her now as someone who's like a total badass, someone who's completely and unflinchingly honest, right? She's been a spokesperson for several brands. She's always seemed to do exactly what she wants to do when she wants to do it. But in the story, she told us back in 1994 that she was kind of getting scared about where her career was going. Yeah, it seems like she was planning for her exit Hmm. from Hollywood, which is so crazy when you think about where she is now in her career from 1994 up until now. And another thing that I loved about this article and was so sort of taken aback was her unbelievably refreshing candor. And we say, among her other accomplishments, she says, is that I make the best Caesar salads anyone has ever tasted. (laughs) In some circles, she adds, I'm as famous for it as I am for my breasts. Um, Who else will give you that realness back in 1994, nonetheless? I've now worked at People Magazine for I don't know, a year and three months or whatever. And so in a year and three months, I've already interviewed Jamie Lee Curtis four times which t- kind of tells you about my devotion to to, 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 to JLC because I just like, I keep finding reasons to interview her, but, but and it's because she is just so, so honest and like we trust her and she was a brand long before celebrities were brands. She's a breath of fresh, you know, a breath mm. of fresh air at 35 at 60 something. I just, I'm a big fan. I'm a big fan. Yeah. And she's taken us along for the ride. She's been open about her road to recovery. She's been sober for more than 20 years now. She's married to the great comic auteur Christopher Guest for almost three decades. Like, hello, Waiting for Guff and a Best in Show, right? She's been open about her childhood, you know, in Los Angeles with two very famous parents. And then I have to be honest with you, I don't know what else she's going to tell us because it's always like a roll your dice moment talking to Jamie Lee Curtis. I mean, have we gushed enough? Isn't it time? Should we just get to it? (laughs) Here she is, Jamie Lee Curtis. I have to first just like set the scene here and say thank you. Andrew and I are beyond grateful, but I just have to say I have to be transparent about my love for, you know, and nearly obsession with you. But it's fair to say that I'm not alone. Like your fans are legion. They love you for Halloween, for Knives Out, your best-selling children's books, your devotions to Children's Hospital in Los Angeles, which I know a lot about, iconic advertising, like Hello Legs Pantyhose. Wow, that was a deep dive. Deep breath, Jason. Because as a kid in the 80s in Arkadelphia, Arkansas, that is like seared into my hippocampus. That was the height of glamour. For Jason. <laughs> I'm, I'm not kidding. Like an architect of Arkansas, like Jamie Lee Curtis and Lex Pantyhose. But um, so your life at the time of August 22nd, 1994. Can you answer the question? When I think of life in 1994, the first thing I think of is... Vacation. I was on vacation in August, which is why the cover of People magazine had to be shot where I was on vacation in the mountains. And yes, in a river with my labs and uh, my family, my mother. There's a picture of my mother in the article where she's on my back. I'm carrying her. I can't believe you remember. Uh, It's unbelievable. Of course, I remember that very, very, very well. Uh, I don't have that hat anymore. It was a wool cap with some fake flowers on it. Don't ask. Anyway, it was in the 90s. <laughs> what do you want from me? The good news is you made it on the cover and the cover comes out and you see your face on like every newsstand and every supermarket and store. And what do you think of this? Like, how does that feel? Who do you see here? So I look at that picture and I go, I don't know who that is. 
And as you know, I have figured it out, but I'm 62 years old now. I was 35 then. But what I have finally found is that when I look like me, I don't want to be other people. I like the development of myself that has filled my life with a lot of meaning and substance. And so for me, I see the insecurity of someone who doesn't really know who they are, what they look like yet. In terms of career, like Up Until True Lies, I mean, which was a huge movie. Huge. Up Until True Lies, had you been doing the kinds of movies you wanted to do? Of course, there were like iconic movies like A Fish Called Wanda. Where were you at that point in your career, pre-True Lies and post-True Lies? See, it's such an interesting thing because I just wanted to work. And if you look at the work I've done over a long, long period of time, from selling yogurt that makes you shit to you know, something like True Lies. I was just happy to work. The thing that made True Lies special was that I was sitting at home one day and the phone rang and I picked up the phone and the man said, hi, Jamie, it's Jim Cameron. And I was like, hello, Jim Cameron. What? Why are you calling me on my home phone? Like what? And he said, I've written a movie for you and Arnold. And I read it and he said, let's meet. I met him the next morning. He said, great, let's do this. I was like, okay, Jim Cameron. Yeah. Let's do like, really? What? And I remember calling my agent and saying, hi, Rick. Uh, I think Jim Cameron's going to call you because apparently he's written a movie for me and Arnold. And he was like, Jamie, that doesn't happen. <laughs> I don't think that's how this is going to happen. And I was like, OK. And it didn't happen. And they never called. And many months went by. And I know they auditioned a lot of women. And I know who they met. <laughs> and it's groovy. You know what I mean? Like, it's to- I totally understood. And yet it, I was very sad. And I finally, uh, it was in the summer, I'm going to go take my family up to the mountains. And I flew to the mountains, told everybody I was going to the mountains. And then they called and said, now they would like you to do this. And then I had three weeks or a month before they were going to start shooting. So it was a very short period. And what I'm saying is the reason why that was spectacular for me is because Jim wrote it for me. A Fish Called Wanda was written for me. When that happens, there's a reason somebody writes it for you. They hear you in their head. And those two examples are examples where I felt the most freedom that I've ever felt as a performer in both of those because of that. So that's what where I was when True Lies was made. Wow. I just ask you really quickly, and you can totally say no. Would you want to tell us if any of the other women who do you think were, were reading for Helen, or are you just going to dodge that? I would never tell you that. Okay. <laughs> don't, don't hate me. I had I had to ask you. I've, I would never, Jason Sheeler. Jason Sheeler. <laughs> you should, I feel like you were teasing. How dare you? No, but you know me as a person <laughs> I do. of I do. integrity. The last thing I would do. By the way, I was a replacement part on Freaky Friday. I was a replacement part on Knives Out. No. What? Yes. On Knives Out? So what I'm saying is there have been a couple big jobs in my life where I've stepped into something that someone else was doing. And then for whatever reason, they didn't. And then I've had a couple big opportunities for things that were, were written for me. And I don't say that out of ego. I'm telling you, that's just where you ask me where I was mentally. I went on vacation and then they called. The phone rang. My agent said they've offered you the movie. I wrote to Jim's producer and I said, could I please get the production manager's number? 
because I called him and said, um, hi, it's Jamie Curtis. Apparently, I'm going to be playing Helen Tasker. When is the scene in the hotel room scheduled? Beat, beat. Third week. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Which meant by the end of August, I was going to be dancing around in my in my nether beings, in my little undies. I mean, like, you're, you're going to slick back the hair. I mean, this is iconic cinematic i mean like the the water and the vase and the i'm not talking about the water okay i'm talking about i had to dance around in my underwear in front of a hundred people i was setting the stage so then what happens next when you read that script you see that he tells you it's three weeks now what happens you start doing a lot of sit-ups so the scene is she walks in she stands there he says dance for me she does her thing. He says, no, dance sexy. Now you have to remember, we shot that over three days. The thing that nobody knows, there was no rehearsal. There is no choreographer. What? I was just about to ask about the choreography. There is no choreographer. Jim said to me, what do you want to dance to? And I said, you know, it was when John Hyatt's Bring the Family album was out. And I said, there's a song called Alone in the Dark that has this really funky rhythm. And I said, I really like that song. And that's what they played. And I am telling you, there was no rehearsal because there are three cameras and dolly tracks. You don't need a rehearsal. The cameras are just going to keep moving. And then the music kicks in and she starts and you see it's really tentative. And then there's a moment where she, like all of us, dance like you're, you know, like when you're alone in the house. I still do it. If I'm playing really great music and there's nobody around, I dance. So she leans into it. I don't think Jim had seen me in my underwear. And what happened was we were doing it over and over and over and it got quieter and quieter. And at one point, Jim walked up and he whispered in my ear and he said, if I get a pad, will you let go of the pole? And I said, sure. And so they just wheeled in a little thin mat on the ground and we did it again. And I let go. Now I am telling you, I've been in the movies since I was 19. I'm 62. I've done all kinds of things. That will be forever. The single biggest laugh I will ever get in my life. And it's because Jim knew that the dance was too sexy. It was too real. It was, it started to actually be good. And he knew he needed to break the spell of what the husband had put his wife through. I think I, we did two takes where I let go of the pole. I'm telling you the single biggest laugh I will ever ever, ever get. And I saw that movie with Tony Curtis sitting next to me in Westwood at the big uh, Fox theater there. Thousands of people. And you know, it gets really quiet during that sequence because it's a little sexy. And then when she falls and then gets back up, oh my God, the place, it was a huge because you're anxious. And then the laugh, and it's all Jim, to his great credit. It's all him. He knew. It's a comedy. <laughs> it's a comedy. <laughs> and, and everyone laughed with you, including Tony, I assume. Tony roared with laughter in that moment. 
There was one more line in the article that I thought was really interesting. You said, as soon as the issue of my looks gets to be difficult, I just won't act anymore. And I'll be honest, because you're so amazing. I feel like I could say that. I said, I want to ask her about that quote, but what's the question, right? Like, I don't have a question. I just thought it was amazing that you were thought that your looks would somehow become an issue by the time you were early 40. And look where you are now. Yes. But by the way, that is based on I'm the child of movie stars. And I watched my parents get facelifts and neck lifts. I watched their work diminish. I watched their fame not diminish. And the contradiction of a lot of fame but not a lot of work is really hard to navigate for people. Very hard to be famous but not be doing the very thing that made you famous. And that for the rest of your life, you're famous for something you did a long time ago. And you chase that attention. Wow. And I wanted to be mindful as the daughter of stars. And so I was hedging my bets because I don't want to be the person pining away for work and not getting it. I just, it's humiliating and it's a hard business and you're, it's yeah. all about what you look like. And I've been lucky, really lucky to be able to have been an actress for this long and working more today than I have since I'm working more today than I ever have. Hmm. And that's just the kind of blessings of something much bigger than me or understanding it. I, I'm just busier. And a lot of it has to do with my own creativity. I am now creating things, not only for myself, but for other people. I have not been waiting around for people. And I love that you've been you've been so open and candid about like, look, you did commercials so you could stay at home with your kids. I mean, you you were these were conscious decisions. I mean, you had agency before that was even really a thing we talked about. Well, but by the way, the agency came from somehow integrity made its way into the work. It's because somehow that someone figured out very quickly that I tell the truth. And so if I'm going to sell legs mm -hmm. pantyhose or Hitachi big screen TVs or equal sweetener or Activia yogurt, I have made a living as a spokesperson from when I was in my 20s. Well, and you did tell me that the, I was like, Jamie, why haven't you written a memoir? I was like, that's a book I want to read. And you said, because I can't tell the truth. Of course, I can't tell the truth, because if you're going to really tell the truth, you're going to either betray private confidences that you had with people, sexual confidences, emotional confidences, romantic confidences. You're going to have to tell the truth about sexism. Uh, you're going to have to tell the truth about Me Too and the positions that you felt you were put in by very specific people. And to do that would mean telling the truth. And then for what? For money? And then to be a soundbite on a talk show? It's just not worth it. It's just not worth it. It will never, ever happen. And, uh, you know, I don't need to do that. I don't need that money. And I wouldn't betray people for money anyway. I'd sell my house. I'd, I'd like, I'd, I would never betray people. Okay, wait, gotta ask, have you ever popped up in anyone else's memoir? I dated Adamant. I was in love with him. 
we were in love with each other. It was beautiful. And then we stopped dating. And then I married Chris and, you know, fairly quickly, by the way. And Adam wrote a book and it was published in England. And I remember kind of that panic feeling. And I ordered it from England and, uh, you know, it was sent to me. And I remember I needed to, I was petrified by what he would have written. And when I read it, he was loving and respectful of our time together and called me out a little bit on the speed at which I got married. (laughs) And I think the heartbreak of the speed that I went off and married Chris, but he did not betray me. And that A, made me feel like what we had together was real and that it wasn't something to then turn into money. And that that was what I always assumed he would be like. I I never thought he would betray me, but there was always the possibility. Greed is greed. It's given me such, it's kind of a tectonic shift in my head right now because it's, there's such an, a thing right now about you know, telling my truth and sharing my truth. And then you're kind of making me think in, in different ways about, you know, what, what that really means by the time it gets to a publisher. Well, but by the way, you're talking about sharing your truth with strangers hmm. for money. I've shared my truth with friends. I've shared my truth in therapy. I am not someone walking around with a ton of secrets. I'm a flawed person. I am contradictory. I am human. I've made big mistakes, but I also hopefully still have my dignity. And that's all I can, you know, I believe you look in the mirror, you're looking at the problem. And so if I can look in the mirror and understand that my side is clean here in this world, at least I've done that. So that got heavy. Sorry. This is people. It's supposed to be light in 90s. I know. I've got one more t- slightly deep question. But oh, it's, uh, you bring me, bring, you bring it, Jason <laughs> Sheeler. You bring <laughs> me the depth. Come on. Well, like, I like, dare uh, you <laughs> right now. Well, look, I, if history serves, one of us will be crying by, by the time this is over, usually me. But I would like to hear your thoughts on the meaning of fame. Why are we famous? What does it mean? Everybody wants it, by the way. Every person who wants to be an actor, a writer, a director, a producer, because it's part of what we do. We're performers. So why are we famous? What is it good for? My mother, early in her career, was part of a group of women called SHARE, which is still an organization out today. It stands for share happily and reap endlessly. And what they realized was they could get their famous spouses to perform in a show and raise money for something. And they put on a big show every year called The Share Show. It is still done to this day. They raised and have raised, and you guys can fact check this, but you know, over $20 million for the Exceptional Children's Foundation. And my mother would participate every May for a month. They would rehearse. I grew up with that. And so that began an idea that, oh, that's why you're famous. And we're so afraid to ask our famous friends to help us. But what the fuck? Honestly, 
what the fuck is it for if not that? So what is it for? How do you really turn it into something for someone else? And that's what I've now tried to focus the rest of my life on. And by the way, and I'm not the only one. And as you know, as you guys write about so beautifully in your magazine. Well, and we're certainly, we're going to direct mm-hmm. our, our listeners to my hand in yours. And we're, we'll mention that as a, as a part of this. So I, I didn't mention it because I'm trying not to make this into a, a, like a promotion. So simply my hand in yours is an organization that I founded, that I started. It is a store that I offer um, that offers both comfort items as well as celebration items to people. And anything you buy from my store, a hundred percent of that sale goes to Children's Hospital. I think it's the only store in the world where you can shop and buy beautiful things, sculptures mm-hmm. and candles and blankets and medallions. And I give all the money to Children's Hospital. Mm-hmm. It's like a weird thing. <laughs> May not be the best business model, but it doesn't matter to me. Well, and, and what you're not saying that I'll say for you is that you underwrite the production of all the objects and you keep the website going and all the ship. I mean, like this is everything underwritten by Jamie Lee Curtis. Well, we're going to turn to um, a little, something a little lighter. We're going to get back to fluff. Oh, we're, go fluff. <laughs> I was like, we don't have her for much longer. Can I show her yes. the picture? Of course. You show me anything you want. So I'm obsessed with 90s red carpet fashion, and I did a deep dive on your style back then, and I have to tell you, it was pretty epic. This is, by the way, before stylists. Nobody had stylists. There were no stylists. They didn't exist. You got dressed yourself. You put your own makeup on. You put your own hair you figured out your outfit. So you had one of the biggest fashion moments of this year at the Golden Globes in the plunging highlighter yellow dress that you wore on stage. When you walked out there, I actually gasped. I was like, no one looked more beautiful that night. Oh, you're very sweet to say. And I'm telling you, I put that dress on. That is no bra. That is nothing. That's the way that dress is built. And I got to tell you, I put that dress on. I went, oh, my God. And then I realized that we had just been in COVID. We had all just spent a year plus in lockdown. And I thought, okay, if I'm gonna go to the Golden Globes, I might as well dress the part. And the truth is, I had such a good time because I feel like I look like me. I'm not trying to look like someone else. And I'm telling you, that's how it fit in my basement. That's how it fit on the day. I am wearing nothing underneath that. That is a commando, commando, top to bottom, north to south. (laughs) And that's the way the dress fit. That's the way it fit. What you did for a lot of women in that moment with that dress was remind them that they can still look sexy, still feel sexy, and still really stun. Like, You don't have to be 20. And I'm far from 20. And I loved it. I was like, yes, look at her. She looks amazing. So thank you for that. It was very inspiring. And I appreciate it. And the next day you're posting on Instagram, the reflection of yourself in the microwave as you reheat your coffee, which was very JLC on brand. Well, it's JLC on brand because I want people to understand that was a moment. I didn't find that dress. I didn't make the dress. You know what I mean? I, I bought it by the way, pay retail. Oh, actually, I have to, we have to stop that. That's 
That is quite a scoop, I have to say. You you paid retail for the address. This isn't some celebrity, gimme, gimme, hook me up. I paid retail for the dress. But yeah, I knew that it was beautiful. And I didn't anticipate that it would be something that people would be um, putting in People magazine. But I appreciate it. Chic AF, as the kids say. Worth every penny. And by the way, you paying retail for a dress is very 90s. So our last question for you, I know you've got to get out of here, is why do we love the 90s so much today? I think it's hard to feel authentic. And I think we feel authentic in a nostalgia. Because to be authentic is to be super brave and to be on the edge of the possibility of not having something be so good. Nostalgia is comfortable. To be on the edge of now has to really demand a real sense of ourselves. And it's scary. And it's, hmm. it's, it's in my opinion, um, a little more fun to step back a couple steps into something that feels sort of fun and familiar and safe. I think it's safety. That's why. Wow. That is um, the best answer we've had, for sure. I was about to say, are we allowed to tell her it's the best one? I don't want her to think we're just kissing her ass. Okay. Bye, you guys. Thank you. Thank Thanks. you. Thank you. That was fantastic. Thank you. I mean, do we keep our promise or what? I mean, she is amazing. Sometimes I'm scared to ask celebrities the questions I really want to know because I feel like that's the ones that they're going to be like, please don't ask me. And she's the opposite. She's like, oh, no, go for it. And that is so refreshing. What I love about her is that she has complete license to be an absolute nightmare because she's been through so much, because she's that amazing, because she's got the bona fides. But she is so awesome and so funny and so self-deprecating and so real. Could someone grab me an Activia, please? (laughs) Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Jason, I have a very important 90s question to ask you. Okay, I'm ready. What was your favorite Snapple flavor in the 90s? So this is maybe awkward, but first of all, I didn't drink Snapple. We didn't have Snapple in Arkansas. I thought Snapple was like a fake thing. I thought Snapple was something they made up on Seinfeld. Like, I didn't think it was a real product. You were in like Snapple QAnon? I don't get it. <laughs> I. What do you mean? I thought it was fake. I thought Snapple was something they made up on Seinfeld. So you, oh, you thought it was like Duff Beer on The Simpsons? Okay. Well, that was an unexpected. No, it was like we, we, we had Cheerwine and Clearly Canadian. I'm so glad you had Clearly Canadian because otherwise I was going to be like, you didn't grow up in Arkansas. You you grew up in outer space. I mean, I was, I was sneaking Zimas. Okay, good, good. So the reason I ask is because I want to discuss one of my favorite articles in the Jamie Lee Curtis issue, which was about the Snapple lady. She was such an icon of the 90s. Totally. Hi from Snapple. We got a letter here from Dirk MacGyver. Your iced tea is the best I have ever tasted. I am not lying when I say this. We'll see about that. Wait, are you sure it's a story and not an ad? I know what a freaking <laughs> ad is, Jason. Okay, so the article is called Iced Tea and Sympathy. 
Amazing. Oh, that's genius. And we say bubbly Snapple spokeswoman, Wendy Kaufman is letter perfect for her job. And she, we write this one pager about the phenomenon of Wendy the Snapple lady and how she came to be and how people fell in love with her and really looked to her for like real advice. They wrote her thousands of letters and she responded to them. Meanwhile, Wendy was 35 single, and also became an early icon of body positivity. I didn't know any of this until I read the article. God, that's really blowing my mind a little bit. Apparently, her fans got really mad at Snapple for hiding what we describe as Kaufman's zoftig form (laughs) behind her desk. I just feel the need to insert myself here. For those at home listening who don't know the meaning of the word zaftig, it means having a full rounded figure, pleasingly plump, according to Merriam-Webster. Yes. Besides, Kaufman, who is single, revels in her frame and fame. Excuse me, Jason and Andrea. Hello, executive producer Kim. What can we do for you? This is mostly my early Hanukkah present to Andrea. I'm listening. I got the Snapple lady. No way. I mean, this is getting out of control. It's not all about Fabio on this show, okay? Well, it's mostly about Fabio, let's be honest. How did you find her? I found her. On Facebook. Oh my God. Wendy's story is so amazing and inspirational. And here are some of her most surreal moments for the peak of her fame as the Snapple lady. When they decided about a real campaign, they went around the office and they filmed people. So here I am, this fat Jewish broad from Long Island. You know, there was all sorts of fighting in the office that they were more attractive people than me in the office. But that was my natural domain. And I ended up going on the air. Because even I was scratching my head, what is going on? And I remember, you know, I was commuting by Long Island Railroad that my conductor said, oh, my God, you're in the commercials. (laughs) So one day I was in the theater district and all of the really trendy Broadway people and all of the trendy stars would go there. And at the next table sits down Al Pacino and I see that he knows who I am, but he doesn't know who I am. And he keeps turning around and turning around. Like, like you know, he winked at me or something. Like we knew, you know, and it was just like very cool between the two of us. I never dreamed of it to be in People magazine in the 90s and to get like a whole spread and a whole picture. And I was beyond thrilled. There is nothing more people, Jason, than what? Ordinary people, say it with me, doing... Doing extraordinary extraordinary things. things. Or extraordinary people doing ordinary things. But she's kind of both. She is both. Snapple Natural Beverages, made from the best stuff on earth. So, Jason, I've been waiting with bated breath. Please give me an update on where we're at with Chasing Fabio. Okay, well, first of all, he just turned 62. So happy birthday birthday. to to Mm -hmm. Fabio. He's a Pisces. We like Pisces. So if you remember last time, and no doubt you're hanging on this with everything, I heard from the president of the Fabio fan club, Donna May, and she said that she would send my request to Fabio's agent. Okay. I have heard nothing from either Donna May or Fabio's agent. And as it turns out, I did a little digging. Fabio doesn't have an agent. Don't tell me that the trail has grown cold, Jason. The trail has perhaps gone cold. And I'm like, is Donna May like misleading me? I feel a little lied to slash betrayed. Um, Do you think you're being catfished? (gasps) 
That didn't occur to me. What if... This could get really good. Wait, hang on. What if Fabio is Donna May? Wow. Okay, this just got really deep. Okay, so I think the next step is to find the Fabio contact, regardless of who it is. Surely someone out there has to be in touch with Fabio. We're going to find him, Jason. We're going to find Fabio. No, actually, I just got even more obsessed because of the conversation. Because now I think you're being catfished. BT Dubs, Andrew, what's what's with this music for this segment? I feel like we're on an episode of Dateline, which makes me super excited. Oh, unless it's like Dateline to Catch a Predator. Still a little excited. <laughs> oh, God. I love Dateline. Same. Okay, one last thing, Jason. Remember the 90s gross-out comedy? It was like the biggest trend. There were the movies that were so absurd, so ridiculous, and really so gross that you kind of like choked on your Reese's Pieces during the film. There was Dumb and Dumber, American Pie, There's Something About Mary. Oh my God, Cameron Diaz. She was so good. I mean, like that scene like with the hair gel. I'm not going to lie. It did take me a minute because I was young. Okay, (laughs) I was young. But is there anyone more 90s than Cameron Diaz? These days, she's right running a wine brand and she's married to good Charlotte's Benji Madden and she's a mom. But in the nineties, she was in our issue because of the movie, the mask. And we did a short profile on her where we described her as a mix of Veronica Lake and Ellen Barkin. Hello, most iconic duo ever. Mm -hmm. And detailed how she got her first movie role in the mask after get this one high school drama course and 12 callbacks. Wait, she auditioned for that movie 12 times? Yes. Like 12 times for The Mask? Yes. They were like, we just want to watch you dance and laugh and giggle and be fabulous one more time. You're so amazing, Cammy. I mean, totally. Totally. Jim Carrey called her Cammy in the article, by the way. She also talked about how she met her then-boyfriend while shooting a commercial for L.A. Gear Sneakers. I mean, L.A. Gear so 90s. All right, I just have to say thanks again so much to Jamie Lee Curtis. I'm totally biased, but one of my favorite interviews we've done so far on the podcast. I wish she could come back again next week. And also if she could bring me that yellow dress, because I would love to borrow it. I mean, retail, y'all. She paid retail for the dress. I'll give her half. People in the 90s is hosted by me, Jason Sheeler, and Andrea Laventhal. It's produced by Jason Sheeler and Chris Jacobs. Executive produced by Kim Rittberg and David Flumenbaum. Edited by Chris Jacobs. Mastered by Erica Wong. And with production support by Elisa Sessler at People, Persia Verlin, Matt Sav, and Rachel King at Pod People. I'm Andrea Laventhal. Thank you for listening. And I'm Jason Sheeler. <laughs>